Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And this week, we're getting a chance to have a conversation uh, with John Spencer, who's a former middle school teacher and current college professor, uh, who's going to be keynoting the Future Ready Nebraska Conference coming up here June 13th and 14th. And so if you haven't had a chance to register for that, that is going to be a learning opportunity that is available both virtually, so you could uh, tune in remotely, right, or in person. And so we haven't been in person in a couple of years with that conference. So excited to have John with us for that event. And today you get a chance to preview a little bit of his message for the keynote and some of the supports that will be coming up with the workshop that he'll be delivering following that for those people who are there in attendance live. And so I'm just going to start off by saying, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, and excited to, to talk voice and choice with you today a little bit. That's a topic that as a former classroom teacher myself is something I was always passionate about. So I'm curious to know a little bit of the backstory maybe for your advocacy for those pieces and maybe even along with that, an explanation of what that sort of means to you. Yeah, so, you know, as I think about this topic of being future ready, for a long time, people have focused on specific skills like, oh, all students need to learn how to code and program or, oh, all students are going to need this or all students are going to need that or we need to, you know, prepare students for jobs that don't even exist yet. And yet the reality is the future is really, really unpredictable. And I talk about in, in the book Empower the, the notion that for years we were taught this formula of like do well at school, go to university, climb the corporate ladder, and the ladder is now a maze. And if that's the case, and and students will need to navigate this confusing maze in the future, then really, what do they need? They need this these sets of uh, essential skills, and we all know what those are. You know, collaboration, creativity. You can call them twenty first century skills. You can call them essential skills. You can call them soft skills. But they will need those skills. And one of the things I believed in the classroom uh, when I was a, a middle school teacher, and I, I still believe it at the university level, is that the best way to prepare students for the future is by empowering them in the present. So to help them become self-directed in their learning, to be self-managers, self-starters. And my journey really began in my first couple of years of teaching by realizing that when I had engagement issues when students seemed to be disengaged it wasn't really about engagement it was about self-direction it was about ownership it was about buy-in and so I was aiming for engagement and I began to realize I need to be aiming higher I need to be aiming for empowerment by providing that sense of voice and choice so for me it really started out with doing a small project getting into project-based learning seeing some success there and then asking the summer after I did that, what am I doing for students that they could be doing for themselves? And it became a whole lot of things. It was having students learn how to self-select scaffolds. So differentiated instruction becomes something where they are seeking out what they need instead of being reliant on me. Or, you know, having them own more of the assessment process. Um, Having students help come up with the class procedures and the rules and the norms and the systems that we have giving them more of a sense of ownership over the physical space, but also little things like doing choice menus and giving them options on their warmups and doing genius hour eventually. And so a lot of different things 
And when I say my journey began there, it really was a journey of trying new little things of more empowerment. And it was a journey that lasted years because for me, I was really afraid of letting go of some of that control. You mentioned yourself that as you know, when you were in the classroom, it was something you were passionate about. Like what, what was your entry point? Oh, I, uh, I had an opportunity to do a lot of work with efforts to personalize learning and support students and finding a number of the things that you're talking about there, right? What are the strategies that you can employ to help optimize your learning experience? And even where it's not optimal, to learn what might be better next time. <laughs> and uh, between those efforts and then, uh, uh, yeah, as you said, things like choice boards, I also have really appreciated like games and what that can sort of layered over those other practices. And so I really like those to kind of bring an additional level of engagement. But uh, across all of that, I'm, I'm with you. I really appreciate when students can have the space to be able to make those kinds of decisions. And it sounds like one of the first places that it got started for you was with PBL. And is that right? Yeah. Uh, and so what would you say then to, because I, I find that sometimes it's tough for teachers to for either conceptualize or feel comfortable giving students the type of responsibilities that we're talking about without a structure or a, here's what I'm doing to do that intentionally um, yeah. plan, right? And, and so was PBL that kind of first foray uh, with your practices? Yeah, you know, I think it was interesting. Some people can, they, they get into the idea of giving students voice and choice and empowering them by doing certain small things in their regular practice, right? So saying, I'm going to have them solve math problems in different ways, or And then actually develop some of their own problems, right? So sort of the Dan Meyer, what can you do with this concept? Or they, they say, I'm going to integrate some self-assessments and peer assessments into what I'm doing. And, and they, they sort of take their traditional practice and they add small layers to it. And I think that approach works really well. For me, it really was the opposite of like, it was saying, I'm going to try project-based learning with my students. It's going to be a drastically different way of doing it. And then I'm going to deconstruct that and say what worked, what didn't work. And there were a lot of things that didn't work. So I'll just say, you know, the very first project that we did, I provided too many structures in areas where they should have had a little more flexibility. And then I didn't provide help when they needed it, right? So, so I didn't provide sentence stems and scaffolds during project-based learning. I, I thought they could do research and I didn't do direct instruction on how to do research. And there are all kinds of things that I did wrong. On the other hand, I was like real strict about certain formatting things. You know, the first project they did was a documentary and I, it was a little bit too much of an instruction manual when I was giving them directions rather than letting them figure some of that out themselves. And so I really think for me, it, it was just getting that taste despite all of the things that went wrong that I did poorly and then kind of deconstructing that and saying, well, based on that, I want to do more projects. I got to figure this out better. And then starting asking, okay, well, what can I do in my sort of traditional way of teaching when I'm doing a non-project-based lesson that takes some of these elements and, and does that. And again, for me, the other thing I'll say is I chose a really low risk time to pilot projects, right? So I, I chose 
the two weeks of state testing where, you know, when students are done testing, they're not supposed to learn any, any new content. You have kids all day long. A lot of teachers are showing movies. It was very low risk. So I chose a low risk way to do a project with students. And then I saw what worked and what failed and realized this is the direction I want to go in. You know, I think in your comments there too, you, you mentioned a number of things that I think can be those deterrents, right? When, when teachers pick yeah. a time of year where it is too high stakes and, and maybe when yeah. that doesn't necessarily sail in the way that they would envision it from the start, uh, it gives them feedback that maybe this isn't something worth continuing to pursue. And so I guess maybe we can speak a little bit to that growth mindset piece that's involved in this, because, uh, you know, as much as we all want to be data driven, for example, situationally, there are times when the first implementation of a better practice might take a dip despite the eventual ceiling being raised, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what have you seen and, support and teachers with that, I guess? It yeah. You know, it's interesting. So you know, in my research area is on project-based learning and professional development and, and really focuses on motivation and efficacy, right? Um, motivation being, do I, do I want to do this? Efficacy being, do I believe I can do this? And what you find is there's often a dip in efficacy when you first implement new strategies, right? And it's, it's like anything you do, you know, the first time you learn how to drive a car, right? You're overcorrecting, you're almost swerving into other lanes, you're, you know, and then it becomes muscle memory, you get used to it, that kind of thing. The first time you do a new workout, it hurts, right? And it's because you're using new muscles that are, that are different. And that's a sign that there's growth happening. Um, and so the same type of thing happens with project-based learning, which is that you enter a time of disorientation where you're confused, where performance goes down, your students don't perform quite as well. You yourself and your teaching craft feel like you're not doing as well, but that's the beginning of that growth, right? That's the beginning of things improving and changing. And so I think there are a lot of things that we can provide for teachers during that phase, right? And so one is, giving them permission to make mistakes. It's not an accident that I chose a low risk time. Testing is over. It's not an accident that teachers try some of these things at the end of the year or in the first week of school, right? Where you're not learning a ton of new content in the very first week. And it's because there's that permission, right? Um, another thing that can help is not going at it alone. So you know, my journey was alone for probably my first two years, but not long after that, I became good friends with a few other teachers and we all had that shared vision of empowering students and giving them that voice and choice. And it was like, once one of us tried something and had done it, then it sort of gave permission for the other people to do that. So, so that's when I began to really become more open to say, letting students have voice and choice in the types of assessments they do. So, you know, I had been doing peer assessment and self-assessment, but letting them select which assessment method that they wanted was really new to me. And I, I had a hard time letting go of that control, but you see someone down the hall doing that and it's working and, and you become open to it. Um, you know, starting out small, experimenting, seeing what works. And then the other piece, which I alluded to was, we really do have to have structures and protocols to make these things work, right? It's not a total free-for-all. It's not a do whatever you want. So having 
protocols that students can use with clear directions that they can follow that, you know, that structured becomes another thing that helps you see some of that success and that boost in, in efficacy so you don't give up. Yeah, and I, I would imagine, and it's probably worth saying again, and you'll be doing a workshop at the conference. And so I'm, a lot of these, uh, the how to, yeah. what it looks like, I'm, will be part of uh, that experience. And so I'd encourage folks to check that out again and register if you haven't. But John, I'd add to this then, it sounds like that the PBL for you then grew into that genius hour. I feel like I heard that referenced yeah. a moment ago. For people who aren't familiar with those two strategies, maybe we can kind of talk about the difference. And then if you could provide a little bit more insight on the genius hour piece of what were some of those supports? I heard that in that last answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what I would say is, you know, project-based learning is a way of teaching, right? So it's a, you can think of it as like a teaching framework, a, a pedagogical framework. And within project-based learning, anytime someone, the, the key distinction I make is project-based learning is all about learning through a project, right? So it's not a culminating project where you learn first, then you do a project. It really is learning through the project. Now, what that means and what that looks like is there's all kinds of types of project-based learning. So one type of project-based learning is sort of the independent project of you're choosing whatever topic you want, you're designing it yourself, and that's Genius Hour, right? Genius Hour is 20% time. It comes from Google, who actually got it from 3M first, and is the notion of 20% of the time you work on whatever you want, and, and they're these sort of passion projects. Other times, though, it could be a design thinking project. So people sometimes think of design thinking as being opposite of, of PBL, but design thinking is just simply a, a creative process. And so your creative process might drive your PBL. And so you might do a design-based project. You might do something like an inquiry-based project. And, and in those moments, it could be something like a science experiment. You might do something where students are like did um, service learning projects where they were doing things connected to the community or ones that were um, like when I taught uh, social studies, we had an economics unit and they did these sort of shark tank style projects. And so what I would say about project-based learning is it's very broad. It's any time that you're learning through a project and it, if, if there's student choice embedded in it, if there's authenticity you know, if there's an authentic audience, then it's PBL. People get really wrapped up in like, this is the right way to do PBL or that's the right way. And I would just say, figure out what works for you, right? And outside of PBL, I think there's a lot of ways, like you mentioned, game-based learning, personalized learning, choice boards, little design sprints that you do in 40 minutes or maker projects or rapid prototyping. There's all kinds of great options that you can do that aren't project-based but still empower students with voice and choice. I mean, one of my favorite examples has been around forever. It's letting people choose what they read, right? So people would, would make a big deal out of like, oh, voice and choice. And I would be like, my favorite voice and choice thing is going to the library, picking out your favorite books and spending 30 minutes a day reading silently on something you love, right? That's voice and choice too. A, a Socratic seminar is voice and choice. And so I really think we have to have a broad definition. And my goal, you know, when I do the keynote, and then later when we do the workshop, is what I would say is I guarantee 
to anybody listening right now, you are already empowering your students with voice and choice. So my goal will be that you are affirmed, that you hear the good things you're already doing and that you start there and then you ask, how do I build on those good things? And what's a small creative risk I'll take as a teacher myself? Like you mentioned the growth mindset, right? How do I build on what the good things I'm doing? What do I try and how do I take it to that next level? Within our conversation here today, you've kind of encapsulated the spirit of teaching or like what gets at the, the heart of the thought process or the emotional process that teachers go through as they're trying new things. Because you said earlier about your own, you're like, where I screwed up, where I messed up, the things that I did that failed. And I think we sometimes can be our own worst critic in that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. in your answer that you just get, which I, which I totally agree with as well, is, is that, yeah, but champion the things that are going well. Right. And, and capitalize upon those, extend those, like play to those strengths. Uh, and how can you even yeah enhance that? And so I love hearing, you know, both of those are going to coexist, I would imagine for most people, uh, but letting that growth mindset went out. All right, then. So for those that are listening in that, that what you just shared, you know, resonates with them. Can you give us maybe some, some details about how when you talked about sentence starters, for example, you know, something at that level, at the implementation phase of things, what are some ideas that you could give to the audience uh, that they might be able to take away and try out maybe before the school year is over? Yeah. So, I mean, what I would say, I'll, I'll just give a couple of different ideas. One would be to ask yourself that question. What am I doing for students that they could be doing for themselves? And just make a list of that. And based on that list, just start trying some of those things. So like, um, a lot of this focuses on instruction, but it could be letting students do the bulletin boards in your classroom. (laughs) You know, it could be giving them assigned jobs. Uh, It could be having them go through a conflict resolution protocol that they do in a group rather than, you know, tattling to the teacher kind of concept and, and really empowering them to resolve conflict. It could also be, like you mentioned, the sentence starters, Think about the scaffolds that you're providing for students. So I have a whole you know blog post where I include some resources with sentence stems that you can use for asking questions, for doing research, for doing those types of things. Provide those for students, teach them how they work, and then teach them how to self-select those things. You know, put together a document of all the different technology tutorials that you have that you found that are useful. And better yet, build a technology team with with students have them find all the best tutorials on YouTube and whatever, and then have a document that's just a tech help document so that they're not raising their hand and asking for help every time that they don't know how to do a particular technology. And so anything like that, I have a a blog post related to choice menus and and I kind of share four different choice menu options ranging from more tightly structured to more loosely structured. Do that, you know, try, try a choice menu this Friday and just see how it works for a warm-up activity. Give them three options on their warm-up and just see how that goes. You can download certain resources. I have like a divergent thinking challenge. That would be very choice-based. I have the Geek Out blogs if you're looking for a, a three-week long bigger project where it's based on, it's sort of a genius hour concept, but it, it's really focused on blogging and they, they choose whatever topic that they want. Um, do something like a Wonder Day project where students can ask whatever question they want about anything. They go through the research process, you kind of model the research process for them, and then they create their own mini podcast where they 
just interview each other and share what they've learned. Um, we, we always call them uh, curiosity casts when I was uh, a middle school teacher. So just find one thing like that and say, what am I going to do next week that empowers students with voice and choice and just try those out. And understanding too, that there will be some people that that message lands with and others are, are, might find themselves saying, that sounds great for English, that sounds great for social studies, but as a math teacher, uh, I don't know if, uh, I mean, do you see this as being universal? Yes, across all yes. so, I, so I think it is universal. And the, and the big thing is asking, where does it fit in my content? So I love that you, you say that, you know, the Genius Hour blog or the Geek Out blog is, is a language arts, but what does it look like in math? In math, you know, like I said, I mentioned him before, Dan Meyer has this, this set of visual prompts and videos that you can look at and have students look at the video or, or the prompt and then they ask themselves, a per, they, they pose their own math questions, which really is engaging in deeper mathematical thinking and problem solving for that. Give them a, a data set and have them ask a set of questions based on the data set. What pops out to you about this, this data set? You know, there are all kinds of options. It, it could be in, again, in a math class, set aside some time, if you're not doing this already, for a five minute mental math exercise where they solve a problem in their head. And then they explain to their partner how they solved it. And they compare and contrast strategies, right? that's an element of voice and choice. So, you know, in a, a PE class or, or let's say it's weight training, you, you don't want to have complete voice and choice in weight training, right? You're going, oh my gosh, don't, don't just go do whatever exercise. But what does it look like there? It might be that you are giving them three options related to a shoulder workout that they could do, but it might be, you know what? There's not a lot of choice you're going to have in a, in a workout program. So I'm going to give you a workout program you're going to use, but where I'm going to empower you is in goal setting and then tracking your own goal and then doing self-assessment. So figure out in your content area, ask yourself, where are there opportunities, easy opportunities to give students just a little more choice? And then how can I implement that? Yeah, I, I love that because I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot with questions like that, but I do know there are people yeah, I love it. That, that, that those kind of questions come up, right? And so it's great to uh, encourage everyone uh, to consider uh, whatever that next growth step looks like for you to take that on. And, and, you know, we're talking about the end of the year and maybe this being a window to try some of those things. I also recognize too, that this is a time when people are, they really have the summer, like first day of summer circled on their calendar. They're ready to kind of get to that yeah. point uh, and then hopefully join us on June 13th and 14th. But uh, for those maybe who, uh, it's been a long school year, um, for those that are maybe not ecstatic at the moment about trying new things, but might be by the time the end of summer rolls around, what words of, of encouragement or what have you seen and experienced in supporting educators uh, over the course of this year? And well, I don't want to presume things here, but I'm going to say a little bit, John, from my own perspective, that I feel like there are some teachers who have been beaten down by the present circumstances of the last two years have stopped maybe trying some of those new things that would really bring back a love for what they're doing and an energy to their classroom. I mean, what, what's been your experience maybe in that same vein? You know, I think we have to be really cognizant of the fact that a lot of teachers have experienced change fatigue, right? Um, 
there have been a big, you know, school-wide, district-wide initiatives. There's been COVID, there's been <laughs> masks are on and then they're off and they're on. There's been, you know, maybe a, a, a period of time that you went virtual then came out of virtual. And so you have this change fatigue mixed with the reality that certain student behaviors are more challenging right now because of trauma and all kinds of things. And so with that in mind, I think a lot of teachers are, they're, they're feeling tired right now and that's okay. One of the things that I, I truly believe is that the sweet spot is that overlap between best practices and next practices. And so if you're doing the things that you've always done and they work, keep doing them, <laughs> you know, keep doing them. But if you're finding that some things that you've always been doing aren't working right now, give yourself the permission to try something different. And then treat that something different as an experiment that you're doing. And if it doesn't work, try something new. You know, I, I mentioned Genius Hour. For me, Genius Hour had to be much tighter than it was for a lot of teachers. A lot of teachers, it was very open-ended. Through trial and error, I came down to the conclusion of it's going to have to be a little bit tighter for me. But, you know, I, I think starting there. And then the other piece that I'll say is, when I ask the question, what am I doing for students that they could be doing for themselves? One of the side effects of it that I've grown to really love is the more we empower students, the less we have on our plates. And we shouldn't feel guilty about that, right? So if students are engaging in more self-assessment and peer assessment, guess what? That might mean that we do a little less assessment ourselves as, as teachers. And that's a good thing. You know, if you give them a choice menu and it's working and, and everything, then maybe it's a little less direct instruction that you have to do. And that's a good thing. And one of the things I began noticing is the more and more students had voice and choice in what they were doing, the more engaged they were, the better the behavior was, to be honest, but also the more they left school tired and I didn't, right? And, and it was a flip. And, and so I, I'll say that, like, I used to avoid talking about that because I was like, I don't want it to seem like teachers should be lazy or, but truthfully, like, I will say, if you are an exhausted teacher, maybe providing some more voice and choice for students might actually take away some of that load that you're carrying and give that to the students instead. You know, as you were talking, I, I would agree and affirm that is a stance so much as a parent. My daughter just turned uh, 11 years old this past spring, and there's been a real effort in, in my parenting to like try to ask her to make dinner a little bit more. When we go into stores, I want her to order for herself. And maybe she should have been doing these things earlier, but it just has felt like kind of a natural transition at this point. And, and you're right. It is crazy since she has gotten in the rhythm of doing that. Now I'm not having to make dinner for her. And now we walk in and she pops right up and, and orders a donut. And those are moments I'm, I'm proud of her in. She's proud of herself in. Uh, it certainly has made some of those moments a little bit easier to navigate. And there's been, a, as you said, a scaffolding processing of support to get her to the place where she's able to do that with um, the amount of efficacy that you're talking about. But yes, right. As a parent, I feel like I, that totally makes sense yeah. to me. And, and why would it not then be true of how we support uh, kids in school? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. And, you know, for us as parents, my wife and I, somewhere around second grade or third grade is when we would teach each of the kids uh, how to do their own laundry. And you're fully responsible for your laundry, you know, and I can't tell you what kind of a load that takes off my back. You know, my, my big thing is like, I, I'm still the one that does the dishes at our house. And I like, they know how to do the dishes. We need to let go of that. But, <laughs> but again, I, I think it's a reminder of, you know, if that's true for us as parents, I think the same thing can be true for students. And what you mentioned, the scaffolding, there will be some direct instruction. There will be some work that you have to do on the front end. But I'm telling you, it saves time in the end, right? So whatever teaching you had to do at the beginning, by the end of the year, it works so well. And I think that becomes that gradual release thing where I always felt like when it was late May and the class felt like it was kind of running itself, that was always my sign of, oh, this is working. Okay, so imagine that feeling then. Um, and P.S., good luck with uh, the laundry piece, right? I, I, that's something, you know, separating out the whites, dryer sheets, and making sure you don't shrink uh, a sweater or something. But, but what you said there about at the end of the year when your culture is in place, that culture is fostered over time. And so maybe this would be kind of where we, we bring this conversation to a close because a half hour always goes faster than I ever think that it will. But the things that we're talking about certainly can help students academically, certainly helps them feel that sense of self-efficacy as we're talking about. But then can you speak to the collective? Because I'm hearing that and I play this off of what I've shared about family as well. I think it's been healthy under my own roof as those responsibilities have been shared. And there's something that is unspoken there between my children and I mm -hmm. by showing them that I see them as being responsible enough to be a part of that with me. Uh, would you say that that's also true the classroom? Yeah, you know, it really is. I love that. It's that notion of shared responsibility. It's, it's that sense of like teacher agency and and student agency. And I think the key thing to remember there is it doesn't make you any less of an authority in your classroom. It doesn't make you any less influential. It, it actually makes you more influential, right? Because what you're really doing in that moment as a teacher is when you let go of some of that control and you give students um, more of, of that sense of agency, more of the responsibilities are shared. Students feel like they have more of that voice and then they grow, right? And they develop those critical skills. And I think that's the, the powerful aspect of it. Well, John, I've so appreciated having the opportunity to visit with you today. And so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat and talk about voice choice and what people can expect from the future Ready Nebraska Conference experiences coming up. And so uh, again, check out nefutureready.com uh, to get registered for that. And if you'd like to learn more from John, uh, would you mind sharing maybe some of the places that people can find your blog, you on socials, that kind of thing? Yeah, you can find my blog at spencerauthor.com. Um, you can find my YouTube channel. It's spencervideos.com. I make a lot of these little sketch videos and things like that. You'll get a, kind of a sense of my visual style. I'm on Twitter at Spencer Ideas. So again, um, those are kind of the three main places. Oh, I'm on Instagram too. I always forget to tell people that. So my Instagram handle is uh, Spencer Education. But yeah, I would love to connect with you. And um, I mentioned certain resources that you can download for free check all of those things out. The main hub would be my, my blog, spencerauthor.com. 
Terrific. And yeah, be sure to catch John's keynote and also that workshop uh, here coming up in June. So thanks. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you then. All right. Looking forward to it. 